Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. All right, come in and have a seat. All right. So today we are talking about uh, the resurrection of the body. We're on page 69 in the Catechism. Um, and we'd, we'd started this a little bit last week, but I want to go over it again this week, and we'll try to go through the first couple questions before we keep moving. Um, and then I think if we can do that quickly, we might even move into part three of the Catechism. Uh, but let's see, let's see how it goes. Um, we speak about the resurrection of the body in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed. Um, and here's question 142. How should you think of the human body? My body is the good and God-given means of my experience, expression, enjoyment, love, and service within God's good creation. But sin and death now infect this world, and my body will degenerate and die. So there's these two parts to this, right? That your body is good, and it is not only uh, just how you experience the world, but it is also uh, your means of expression, enjoyment, and love and service within God's creation. Um, and this means, this, this tells us what? Is the body evil? No. Really? Are you sure? See... Christians hold to this dogged conviction that the body is not evil and it's not meant to lead us away from God, but in fact the opposite. That the body is a means of expression, enjoyment, and all these wonderful things within God's good creation. Um, Now, you may remember that uh, if you ever took a world religions class that certain religions actually teach that uh, the body is uh, is a means of distraction, (laughs) Uh, from the truth about ourselves, which is not true, by the way, but, but from this truth that we are simply uh, uh, spirits trapped in evil bodies. And we need to be relieved of our bodies uh, in order to uh, not live in this state of constant distraction uh, from uh, the good. And the good couldn't possibly be bodily, right? Well, think about it. I mean, your body is kind of disgusting in certain ways, intuitively, yes? I mean, we... we we don't talk about what we do in the bathroom, right, on a regular basis. Some of you may, but but we don't we don't we try not to do that, right, in polite company. Um, you know, there's certain functions of the body we don't like to talk about, right? When you go into the hospital and you have a surgery, or you're you're laid up and there you just can't get out of bed, there are certain things they have to do to you that are embarrassing, to say the least. We know this; it's ucky, right? Um, But the ick factor alone does not change the fact that for Christians, we continually hold to this understanding that the body is good. Now, there is a fundamental distinction to be drawn. And what's the distinction? The distinction is that because of sin and death infecting this world, uh, my body will degenerate and die. Um, I think this is rather rather key. Because remember, in the account of creation, does God make human beings and say they are simply good? Or what does he say? Very good. 
so that God's greatest creation, uh, that of human, human beings, the body, um, will ultimately decay and die, or will rather die and decay. Um, and this is to say that uh, sin has such disastrous effects that it leads to this, um, that it leads to this degeneration and death. When uh, rebellion is introduced into creation, it leads to dis- disaster, okay? um, especially in the perpetrators of it, namely us. Um, but that is not the end of the day. That is not at the end of the day uh, what wins out, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Where do you go after you die? When I die, my body will perish, but by the will of God, my soul will live on, awaiting resurrection and final judgment. Um, and that is to say that the human, that the human soul uh, awaits resurrection. Now, in what state it awaits resurrection is something that we leave open as a mystery, right? Uh, is it in the immediate presence of God? I would say for Christians, yes. That's, a, that's quite a good answer and a very good answer at that. Um, but having said that, we simply do not know what the state of the soul after death is. Um, now, I should say that uh, this has been the source of a great deal of uh, Christian musing through the centuries. Uh, there are those who hold to some form of purgation, right? That the soul is imperfect and must be perfected prior to the resurrection of the body, must receive some sort of um, cleansing prior to entering glory. In fact, uh, I would say most Christians believe that uh, the soul must be cleansed prior to entering glory. We just disagree as to what that is. Um, and uh, so uh, Roman Catholics, for instance, teach some way of, of uh, purgatory being a place of cleansing uh, prior, to, prior to entering glory, um, even for the soul to enter glory prior to the resurrection that's needed, um, pretty much everybody holds to some sort of final sanctification, okay? That's got to be said. Um, but that is to say that, that, uh, that the soul awaiting the resurrection of the body is, in a sense, incomplete, right? Uh, it's not exactly as God intends it to be on into eternity, and we see why in the next page. So let's ask that question. What is the resurrection of the body? When Jesus appears on judgment day, he will bring all the dead back to bodily life, the wicked to judgment and the righteous to eternal life in the glory of God. Um, Christian teaching is, is not that we are judged in a, in a bodiless soul-only state, but we are actually judged as a totality of body and soul raised together um, on the last day, um, which means that you you meet God in the body for judgment, right? Um, and uh, and that is to say, and and again, this is also to say, everybody gets this, right? Um, it is unavoidable according to uh, according to Scripture uh, that uh, every single human being who have, who has ever lived will be raised on that last day. Go ahead, Emily. Yep. Um, the Anglican teaching is simply that there is a sanctification of souls prior to entering glory. Um, what that is is left wide open. Now, however, I should say, the articles roundly condemn the, the contemporary meaning or the t- at the time in the, 15th, in the 16th century um, understanding of purgatory prior to the Council of Trent. Um, now, that gives you a pretty wide swath as to what that might be, right? Um, we, we know generally what Roman Catholic teaching was during that time, uh, and it was essentially that, uh, you know, keep in mind, at the time of the Reformation, 
uh, there were people like Tetzel, right? Do you remember Tetzel from your history classes? Going around saying, you know, uh, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, right? In other words, you have to pay for your relatives to emerge from purgatory. And this is what Luther finds so horribly objectionable, right? As he should have. Um, now, the Council of Trent comes in and says, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You can't buy your way out of purgatory. Only grace can get you out of purgatory. And, and I would say, well, rightly so. But, but the problem with it is that uh, in Anglicanism, we've rejected that understanding of purgatory, right? That, um, that, uh, uh, that the grace of someone else, the, the kind of merit of someone else can, can get you out uh, is not, not something that we would hold to. Um, also, most Anglicans would just reject the idea of purgatory outright. However, there have been some through the years, like C.S. Lewis is a great example, um, who say, you know what, you kind of have to have something like that because you have to have the sanctification before entering glory, right? You have to have that. Um, and he, he likens it to this. He says, it's like, you know, before you go out to a really nice dinner, what do you do? Especially if you've been working all day long. You take a shower, right? Why wouldn't you take a shower? You need to, right? Um, and, and, I, and I think he says, if there's any pain in it, too, he, he talks about how it's kind of like going to the dentist, yes? It's painful, but it's good for you, right? Um, so that's, that's one option that's within the, And mo, I would say, again, most will just com- simply reject it. But there have been some who say, you know, hold on. Um, we don't want to hold to a teaching that says uh, there's no need for final sanctification. We don't want to hold to that at all. Um, and I would, I would largely agree with that, actually. I'd say, yes, absolutely. We, we need to hold that there's final sanctification. We have to hold that, right? Um, I think the other problem with, uh, with Roman Catholic teaching in the 16th century before the Council of Trent was essentially that purgatory had sort of become a place of judgment more than a place of cleansing. So the idea is that um, you, you never know. You might, you might hang out in purgatory and then just go to hell, right? Now... That's, that's completely wrong, right? And, and by the way, the Roman Catholic Church today rejects that teaching completely, right? Because um, they actually teach for, very firmly that um, purgatory is only for the elect. Um, so you've got to kind of hold all that in, in place um, and intention. I think, I think the key is to say that um, whatever happens to the soul after death is that it is, first of all, not joined to the body, um, and we, have no, we really have no idea. Why? Why do we have no idea? Scripture doesn't tell us, okay? So we just don't know. Um, and and that's, that's very important that we, that we kind of that we hold to that because uh, at the end of the day, um, death, death is a mystery, right? Okay, so there's a question. Go ahead, Don. There are some who believe that, yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, there's kind of this idea that, um, and, and he's holding to a very Jewish conception of what, of, of Sheol, this kind of idea that you just sort of are in this somatic sleep state until, until the resurrection. Um, Christians have tended through the centuries to buck that understanding because they have trouble, they have trouble conceiving of how it would be that uh, that the soul is inactive for many, many hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. Um, and I would, I would tend to agree with that. I would say that, um, that, uh, that, well, I would say this. 
I, I hope that I get to pray when I'm disembodied, right? At least in whatever ways I'm, it's possible for me to pray, right? Um, and and I, I don't see much. I don't see much point in kind of having a bunch of uh, souls on reserve doing nothing uh, until the resurrection. And in fact, and in fact, Christians have not actually believed that. Yes, because in fact, in, in the ancient church, people believed that hey, uh, the souls of the departed constantly pray before God. The faithful departed, they pray. Um, so that's that's kind of a key a key thought there. So. I get what he's saying. He's, he's leaning more heavily on the Jewish end of things, which says they don't do anything. And if, in fact, it's in a more ancient way, too. And as you all know, that um, the Greeks understood that when you die, you just sort of enter into this, uh, into the place of the dead, and you're just there, and it's awful, and nobody likes it, and but nothing can really be done. Nothing can be done for you, right? <laughs> because you're dead. So anyway, uh, do, uh, do you have... Yes. Mm. Well, I would say a couple things. One is that, um, in Scripture at least, it seems that uh, that what animates the human body is is the soul and the breath of God and and all kinds of supernatural things, right? Uh, and that uh, that these are in fact greater than what animals or anybody else might have. Um, that it is in fact the very breath of God which animates human life. So in one sense, it's not the same, um, nor should we expect it to be. Um, in another sense, I would say that um, it, it's clear enough also that in in the Old Testament, for instance, um, you know, the blood of animals is sacred. Why? Whose blood animates that life, right? The life of a cow, the life of a of a bird. Um, so there's this understanding that um, that when you take that blood, uh, something very sacred has has been has transpired, um, and the same is true for us as well. Um, but Scripture seems not to indicate that uh, living things outside of human beings have what we would classically call a soul or spirit. Even there's. There's a bit of a problem here, too, because biblical anthropology has never been entirely clear as to whether we are tripartite or bipartite people, right? It's kind of this longstanding debate, right? Are we, are we three parts, body, soul, and spirit, or are we simply body and kind of soul-spirit, soul-slash-spirit, right? I, I, I don't know, right? <laughs> uh, what the, the point being made here is that uh, the soul is separated from the body in death. Um, now, is it is it possible that they don't go very far from each other? Well, sure, right? Um, but but the question is, what is the soul, and where does the, where does the soul exist? I think these are kind of all all questions that are out there, um, and I would actually say that from from the perspective of Anglicanism, uh, there's there's a great shyness about getting too far into t- closely defining such things, um, and I think that's actually proper. Why? Well, because there's your answer. Scripture isn't entirely clear as to what makes up human beings. Just isn't clear. Um, I wish it was more clear most days, <laughs> but it's not. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think we have uh, we have we have a difficulty uh, and. The difficulty is best described by, you know, 
we, we as Christians know that we live in a world that is both seen and unseen, visible and invisible, but we tend to focus on the visible and what is seen uh, to the neglect of all, of all others. Um, and it's right that we should, in a sense, because can you see your soul? You, I mean, this, here's the thing. It's this, you, you know that there's this invisible part of you, right? But you don't know it really that well. Um, and that's, that's, that's part of the struggle, is that um, we hold that, that uh, human beings are a totality of the visible and the invisible. That's important. Uh, there's something, um, we were talking about this last week, there's something even deficient about a, a bodiless soul, right? Or even worse, a soulless body, right? Because these are the stuff of horror films, are they not? I mean, one is a ghost, the other is a zombie, right? Mm-hmm. That's scary. Uh, but, but what's not scary is, is, is the proper state, okay? All right. We good so far? Go ahead. The 39 articles, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the 39 articles are really kind of the Reformation standard of faith uh, coming out of the Church of England in the 16th century. Um, and they go to addressing uh, two different extremes, as the articles would uh, were, were written to address. Uh, one is Roman Catholicism. Uh, prior to the Council of Trent. The other is um, kind of Reformation, uh, Reformed um, Continental Reformation doctrine, right? Uh, so it addresses such things as, you know, hey, despite what some people are doing on the continent, we will not dispense with infant baptism, right? That's going to continue. Um, despite what some are saying on the continent, uh, you know, it, 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 it walks this very... It walks this line between two ends of the spectrum. Um, so in terms of thinking about how authoritative the articles are, uh, there's a bit of a problem because for some of you, you come out of very confessional Christian traditions where if it's not in the confession, we don't believe it, okay? Uh, and, you know, that, that's, uh, that's been appealing to a great many Anglicans who say, well, let's just dig up these 30 articles and make them the confession of faith. Well, that's not what they are. Um, they're they're not um, they're not meant to serve that purpose at all. Um, so there's a difficulty there. They're not a confessional statement. Um, they simply lay out the boundaries of of Anglicanism. Uh, confession is so. If you're going to have a, a controlling analogy here, uh, a confession of faith is much more like a, a central rallying point that says if you're going to be a part of our tribe, you've got to put your hand on the on the central rallying point and you've got to agree with every single line of it, and that's it. The articles don't serve that purpose. They actually lay out boundaries. So it's much more like fencing in the area. Um, and that's, that's actually how things are usually, usually best described when it comes to the articles. Um, if you want to read the articles, you can read them in the back of a prayer book. You can read them online. Um, just search 39 articles and they'll, they'll come up. Um, it makes for rather excellent bedtime reading. Uh, I'll put it that way. Um, but, but the point is that um, it, it, it lays out that, and I think I would just say it this way. In Anglicanism, it's classically been the case that you, you just want to avoid extreme points of view, right? And that's not just because we're proper and we want to know what's proper. It's that um, there's danger when you go into, ex- into the extremities, right? Um, because you wind up stating something affirmatively that can't be easily stated so affirmatively um, and still uphold the authority of Scripture.
So that's a, that's a really important point. I think the other thing that you need to recognize as well uh, that is almost never said in this conversation but needs to be said is that um, most often, actually, if you really want to know what Anglicans teach, you just open up the prayer book to whatever liturgy addresses it, right? So if you want to know what, what, what we teach about marriage, where do you look? The marriage liturgy, right? Great place to start. Um, if you want to know what we teach about the resurrection of the dead, what do you look at? The burial rite, right? So all of this is to say that that the uh, that uh, for Anglicans, uh, our worship and doctrine go together. Um, one informs the other, and likewise. So I, I lay that out with you as well. And sometimes, sometimes people will will articulate a, a reading of the articles that is in direct conflict with what the liturgies actually state. And what they're doing is they're inserting their own interpretation into how they're how they're reading the articles. And they're going outside the bounds of what the liturgies actually say. So that's a danger you got to be clear about as well. Is um, and it's it's uh, it's also rather difficult. And I would say this too. It's also rather rather difficult to um, to apply a document from the 16th century to all kinds of disputes that are inherently um, 21st century disputes. Right? It's very difficult to do. Um, can they be a source document? Absolutely. Um, are they uh, are they are they authoritative in the same way now as they were then? It's just really hard to do, right? Because and and here's what I would say. And purgatory is a great example of this. Is the Roman doctrine of purgatory in 2016 the same as it was in 1552? Not at all, right? There's just a vast world of difference. Um, and so that's a that's a great example. Um, and the same would be true of transubstantiation. The same would be true of the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification. I mean, it just is a laundry list of things that are just totally different these days. And um, so you've got to be aware of that, right? And, and one of the things that Reformation scholars are well aware of, and I'm probably going on too long, is that, well, you know what you do when you have an enemy that you can't quite make sense of. What do you do? You set up the straw man and you mock the daylights out of him, Right? Um, and that is a great tendency among the reformers to do that, is to say, these guys over here, bad news, here's why. <laughs> and and they, they haven't really read it deeply enough, right? Um, and this tendency is, is, is vast and, um, and, and rather unconquered. And in the same light, um, a lot of people think they know what the reformers taught, and they actually don't, right? So that's a, that's a great example as well. Um, I, I usually try to be very patient with people who say, yeah, but Luther says this. Because <laughs> I also have to say, like, yes, and he also says this, and he also says this, and he also says this. Um, that you read four pages of Luther while you were, you know, in Bible college uh, does not qualify you as a Luther scholar, okay? As I think John can attest, right? You say, listen, most people, their reading of Luther is so shallow that they can't possibly understand even the most basic parts of it, right? Um, so I put that out there as well. And the same is true of, of the Anglican reformers. The same is true of all kinds of others. Um, these were very intelligent people, okay? And they, they write and write and write and write and write. And even despite being that intelligent, they still have tendencies to mock and deride their enemy, right? As we all do, right? Um, <laughs> it's just that there's, there's some issues there. So anyway, we got off track. But the point is, that, the, point is the same, that, um, that first off, I'll put it this way. All Christians who believe in the resurrection of the dead have to hold that there's some kind of intermediate state of the soul 
prior to the resurrection of the dead. You have to. Otherwise, what happens? You deny the resurrection of the dead, unwittingly. Um, secondly, um, you, have to, you have to hold, and I think this is really key, and this is the part that I really want to harp on, most of all. You have to hold that the body is real, the body is good, and the body is sacred. Um, it is not, uh, it's not meant to do, it's not meant to do you harm, it's not meant to lead you away from God, it's not meant to do any of those things at all. The body's good. And we see that the body's good, um, and I wish that this was, uh, this was made more clear. I mean, let me just ask it this way. How do we know that, how do we, how do we know for certain that the resurrection of the body will happen on the last day? Yeah, the resurrection of Christ, right? Uh, listen, I mean, this is why Paul says, if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, your, your hope is in vain, and everything's vain, and everything's a waste of time. This is essentially his point, right? Um, and, and you'll often hear me say this on Easter Sunday, you know? If this thing that we're talking about today didn't happen, I should just take my vestments off and walk out the door without apology because I'm wasting my time. Christian, the Christian hope in the resurrection of the dead is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead um, as, as a glimpse of our future. Okay? That's, that's the teaching. All right. Any questions before we move on? I know I just threw a lot at you. Okay, good. Question 145. What do you know about the resurrected bodies of believers? I know that they will match, express, and serve our redeemed humanity and be fully renewed in the image of Christ, being fully glorified in him. Okay. They will match, express, and serve our redeemed humanity. Now, there's a couple words here that are really important. Um, the, I think the, the, probably the, the key word that I turn you to is this, this, this phrase, fully glorified. Christian teaching on, um, on the human future in Christ is that of glory. Okay, we spoke a little bit last week about how um, to be made in the image of God is to be one who is made for glory. Now, what does it mean to be made for glory? Okay. Well, let's ask it another way. How do you not experience glory these days? You're separated, you're cut off, you know, you're, you're not face-to-face with God all the time. That's a good one. Do you do what you know is right all the time? No. Uh, so you are not a master of yourself, nor are you a master, nor do you have any mastery in creation, really, in and of yourself. What else? Sin, yeah. It's, it's basically Romans chapter 7, right? It's, it's all that I want to do, I can't do it. I find it to be a law that you know, when, when, uh, when, when the, that there's a war in my members, yeah? And we experience this war. Um, redemption is expressed best in, in, in Christian terms as being fully glorified in Christ. Um, and that means that our bodies will match, express, and serve our redeemed humanity. Um, and we see this in the resurrection of Jesus, yes? Right. Now, did his body prior to the resurrection match, express, uh, and serve his redeemed humanity? Yes, in a way, but with one significant difference. He was still liable to death, right? Why was he liable to death? 
Because in a sense, his body had not been redeemed. Um, his body was still still a, 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 a body liable to death. Um, and of course, as Paul says, you know, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. For the death he died, he died unto sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Do you see the answer? That's, that's, where, that's where the glory part comes in. And we note certain things about his resurrected body, don't we? As we read the resurrection accounts, if you turn to John chapter 20 or chapter 21, you read all these wonderful accounts of what happens to Jesus, what, what, what Jesus' resurrected body is like. What's it like? It's, it's different. Yet, the same, right? He, listen, he's recognizable at, at times, and at other times, not. He can walk along the road with two disciples, and they won't recognize him. Why don't they recognize him? I, I'd give two answers. Either he can change his appearance, fine, or he can do what? Maybe his, maybe his appearance is so glorified that people don't recognize him. I would actually say it's probably the probably the former. But, but you see the point. He can change his appearance, right? Uh, Mary Magdalene, who does she think he is? The gardener. Why does she think he's the gardener? I, I don't know. She, I, I don't think it's enough that she's just in denial, right? Um, I, think, I think it's got to be something more than that. Uh, oh, here's a great one. The doors to the upper room are locked for fear of the Jews. And what does Jesus do? He came and stood among them. He appears right in their midst. Uh, and he can also disappear as well. Um, you know, we, we read that he, you know, one of the great accounts in John is he prepares a charcoal fire and cooks fish on it for breakfast. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Well, we actually know he eats, right? Um, and he, he, he apparently can eat, but he, does he have to? Probably not, right? Because what's the consequence for not eating if you're not resurrected? You die, right? What's the consequence of not eating if, you're, if you have a resurrected body? Nothing, right? Because you're glor- you have a glorified body. Okay. Um, try to think of one more. Oh, you know, listen, he still has, he still has the marks of the nails in his hands and his feet and his side. But certain things are not evident, right? Like the lashes, right? Like, like he's not bloody. There are marks, but he's not bloody. Um, oh, another great thing. If, if you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, they're dizzying because read the gospel accounts and they have a map next to it, right? Hey, listen, he, he can't walk as far as he's depicted walking in one day. And a lot of people say, well, that's proof of the resurrection didn't happen. And Christians simply say, you don't know what the resurrection is, right? Because the resurrection is not rose into a body like ours, again, that just won't die again. It's a glorified body um, that, is, that is marked, um, that, is, that is raised immortal and spiritual. Um, I should say as well, Paul says the resurrected body is a spiritual body. Yes? Okay. Does that mean that it's, that it's invisible? No, because spiritual doesn't mean that, right? When you read when you read ancient texts, you need to stop the hesitation. You need to stop the, the sense because it's a modern one that spiritual means invisible. Okay, it doesn't mean that. Um, spiritual means that it's it's primarily defined by spiritual things, right? Um, and that's that's the key. All right. Any questions there? I want to try to move through the rest of this. Oh, absolutely.
That's right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. How does the promise of bodily resurrection alter the way you live today? Because my body was created good by God and is redeemed by him, I should honor it. I should refrain from any violence, disrespect, or sin that would harm, demean, or violate either my body or the bodies of others. Um, one, of the, one of the marks of a... Uh, I should, I'm going to say this as kindly as I can. One of the marks of a, of a rather paganized society is that the body no longer carries the kind of meaning or sacredness that you thought it did. Um, this is often uh, shown by um, things like self-mutilation, things like, um, and, and I don't want to get I don't want to get into the morality of tattoos, but tattoos. Uh, um, and I'm not saying tattoos are wrong. I'm just simply saying that think about think about the kind of idea of the human body which is accompanying that that uh, that vast growth of that uh, not just the industry but the proliferation of of these things is, is incredible, right? Um, think about for a moment. Um, how uh, how we as human beings uh, tend to think about the body, right? I mean, just talk to friends. Say, what do you think will happen to your body when you die? They say, it'll probably be burned up and uh, shipped off to various uh, relatives. I don't know. There are lots of possibilities these days, and people are, are kind of all over the map on it because at the end of the day, the, not only is the resurrection of the body denied, but the goodness of the body is, is denied. And here we say, because of this, because my body was created good by God and is redeemed by him, I should honor it. I should refrain from any violence, disrespect, or sin that would harm, demean, or violate either my body or the bodies of others. And so uh, acts of violence against the body. Um, I mean, we, we, have, we have a horrible uh, problem in this country of suicide. Um, and I have to believe that part of it comes from a belief that the body is is meaningless, um, because kind of you, you think about it, and and most suicide people, they, most people who commit suicide, they don't they don't think they don't say things like, um, you know, I I am I'll be nothing after this. It's I'll be free from this horrible bodily life. Um, so you got to keep this in mind. This is a this is to say that um, that. Uh, we, we've got to hold that the body is is uh, is is us, right? Because think about it. I mean, when I talk about Jeff, I'm not talking about this kind of abstract idea, right? Floating out in the ether, right? I'm talking about Jeff, who's sitting over there, right? Um, and that's important. Okay. Um, it's also it's also the case that um, we have to oppose in all varieties. Uh, the kind of violence which is which is perpetrated against the body, um, and that includes all kinds of things um, that Christians have found to be uh, odious morally from the very beginning, um, and uh, and I think we've got to we've got to keep that in mind. And, and this is where we get to things like yes, abortion, prostitution, um, uh, genital mutilation of various kinds. Um, there are all kinds of things which Christians say we just cannot have. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, some of the work that Rodney Stark over at Baylor's done has shown that this this honoring of the body is actually quite attractive to ancient peoples, um, and should be attractive today. It's to say that um, that the Christians alone, in certain portions, in certain times, uh, were the ones who did who treated the body well, um, and that's that's very meaningful. It's, and and I would say, in addition to that, it's not just it's not just healthy bodies that are treated well; it's especially sick bodies that are that are that are in need of care. 
Um, so this is this is a this is an important example. Um, there's a tendency, uh, uh, especially in medicine today, to sort of see, um, and I think also among just kind of people in general, to sort of see the human body, especially when it's when when people are sick, as kind of, well, that's not really you know that's not really who the person is. There's something else, right? Um, I think we've got to resist that urge and say, no, that's 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 Joe right there. Um, and so Joe in his body is worthy of um, and, and, and has a dignity um, which demands care. Yeah? So that's, that's an important thing that we would say. Um, okay. Life everlasting. You ready? What do you know about the unending life of believers following Judgment Day? I know that it will be a life of joyful fellowship with our triune God and with resurrected believers as we praise and serve God together in the new heaven and the new earth. Okay. A life of joyful fellowship with our triune God. This is is how the image of God is restored in man. Okay, you want to see it? We were created for what? Glory, fellowship with God, right? What's the first thing that's sort of realized about Adam when he's just alone in the garden? This is not good for him to be alone. Man is created for, uh, for, uh, for fellowship not only with God but with, with our neighbor as well. Um, and we know that in life everlasting, this will be restored to us. Um, and with resurrected believers as we praise and serve God together in the new heaven and new earth. Now, we've talked a little bit about this before, but there's, there's kind of this ongoing uh, and rather uh, interesting problem that happens, which is that... Um, Many people imagine that sort of the, the earth will be destroyed, like blown up like the Death Star, okay, and, uh, and scattered throughout the universe as sort of like asteroids or something. I don't know what happens to dead planets, but so that kind of thing. Um, and I think the Christian vision has far more tilted towards the earth being renewed uh, and having a renewed creation. So when you think new heaven, new earth, I uh, think in terms of renewed, um, much more like a kitchen renovation, Yeah. Or you say, people say this all the time, like, oh, I'm getting a new kitchen. Are you getting an addition that's going to be the kitchen? Or are you getting, you know, and usually it's not that. What is it? It's that everything's getting taken out and, and new cabinets, new lighting, new appliances, and all that. That's, what, that's what's meant by new kitchen, right? But it's the same place. And I think there's actually something really beautiful about that, right? Which is that, um, that um, and I think if you really want to get to the, to get to the meat of this, um, N.T. Wright's books, uh, like Surprised by Hope, have been really helpful in this regard. It's to say that uh, what we await is not the obliteration of all things. Again, because a lot of people, their understanding of heaven is, oh, well, just every, every physical thing will be completely obliterated, and including my body, and then we'll get, we'll get to the really good stuff, which is a bodiless, which is a bodiless just simply soul and God together. But see, this is, this is precisely what we have to resist. Because it's precisely as we're entering into Christmas, right? And as we're in Advent. Because God doesn't simply take up a human body for a while. What do we teach in the Incarnation? God takes up a human nature forever. Um, so that's, that's Christian teaching, right? Which is to say that we, we have access to receiving the same kind of glorified life that the Son of God receives in his human nature. Okay. 
Go ahead. Yeah. He is seated, and not was or uh, not uh, was once. It's it's he is right, um, and uh, and that's an important important thing to keep in mind. Remember last week we used used the analogy, which comes out of the fathers, of um, of the iron and the fire. Right, iron by nature, when it's just alone, is what it's cold, it's hard, it's it's uh, it's dark. Um, but when you put it in the fire, what happens? takes on the property of the fire. It becomes hot and red and uh, fiery, but is it fire in and of itself? No. It just takes on the properties, right? But it is still that thing. And this is what uh, this is what people have spoken of in terms of if you ever come across theological writing and you read words like theosis or deification, this is what we're talking about. Is that the properties of, of human beings who are in a glorified state uh, no longer reflect bare humanity, but reflect the glory of God. That's what's, that's what's meant by it. Um, indeed, they become God, like iron becomes fire, um, in that sense. We become by nature what we are not by grace. Or we become by grace what we are not by nature. Sorry. <laughs> okay. How should you live in light of this promise of unending life? I should live in joyful expectation of the fullness of my transformation, soul and body, into the likeness of Christ as a part of the renewal of the whole creation. In the midst of life's difficulty and suffering and in the face of hostility and persecution for my faith, I am sustained by this hope and the knowledge of our triune God's eternal love for me. Okay. This can be counterintuitive for modern people. Um, sometimes people will say things like, well, you know, it's the people who really got it that uh, that this life is kind of immaterial that have done the most good in life. It's the people who really got it were the ones who who didn't take this whole thing too seriously. Um, and especially it's thought, well, the people who do the most good are people who don't really hold so strongly to this kind of doctrine. And in fact, what we find is the exact opposite that the people who hold to this Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting are the ones who take this life the most seriously. That's a really important uh, key to understanding. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you were familiar with it, but there was there was sort of a debate. Did I preach? On, I think I even preached on this a little bit. But um, surrounding uh, Mother Teresa's canonization, the old familiar voices came out of the woodwork and said, "Oh." how can you possibly canonize someone like Mother Teresa? She wasn't a terribly good or effective humanitarian. Okay, all right, fine, point taken, right? Um, and she got involved in some kind of like unsavory deals. Okay, fine, point taken. Um, and you know what would have been really good for humanity is if she actually healed people and got them to a doctor rather than holding their hand as, she, as they died. Okay. Do you see what's so radical about her? Is that she actually takes death and care for the dying seriously enough to actually love them, right? So, so there's, there's this, like, by human standards, yeah, not a terribly good humanitarian, right? But I think part of the glory of it is that when you look at somebody like Mother Teresa, you say, but there's a woman who gets human, human purpose, right? There's a woman who gets human dignity. Um, and this, of course, will be mocked and derided, right? It'll be like, well, what's the point? Well, the point is, like, people who had no hope died with some hope. Um, so 
I say that because because um, this is this is really key. Um, the people who the people in this world who have, who have really who've really gotten it have have held doggedly to this conviction um, in the resurrection of the body, um, and it has caused them not to uh, be um, blasé about human life. It's in fact caused the opposite the opposite uh, sense of dignity. Um, so let's let's break this down just a little bit. Um, I should live in joyful expectation of the fullness of my transformation. Okay, so this is to say that uh, you know I hear a lot of people kind of speak about how uh, their transformation as a Christian is just complete. Well, <laughs> this is this is not a Christian vision, right? Of of total and complete transformation in Christ. Um, that in fact it touches not only upon the soul but also upon the body. Right. Um, so it's to say that any vision of, of redemption which does not include the body is an incomplete vision. Um, and also into the likeness of Christ. Now, what does it mean to be like Christ in this, in this depiction? It means that you enjoy everything that he does in the fullness of who he is as the second person of the Trinity both human and divine, having two natures and one divine person at the right hand of the Father. Okay? So that means that you, you get to receive this full image. Um, and because of that, in the midst of life's difficulty and suffering and in the face of hostility and persecution for my faith, I am sustained by this hope and the knowledge of our triune God's eternal love for me. Um, one of the most poignant things that's ever happened to me in being a part of writing this being a part of this catechism work was that um, a few years ago a church was bombed in Pakistan and we were told afterwards that they had received copies of this text in their local language. Um, and part of what the, their bishop was talking about as he relayed this to us was that um, the people there they were, this was a church bombing that happened on a Sunday morning so they were in, they were in worship when the bombing happened. And what he, what he essentially said was um, these people were anticipating in the body what they received that day. Do you see? Um, so there's this, there's this thought that says they, they, were, they were in worship anticipating that fullness of transformation. Um, and I, I want to relay that to you because that's what we do every Sunday, do we not? We we await the transformation of our of our bodies even into the likeness of Christ. Um, one more kind of funny thing to throw out there is that uh, Augustine believed this so strongly that he believed everyone would receive a 33-year-old human body uh, in the resurrection. Uh, why? Well, not because a 33-year-old body is better than anybody else than any other age, but because that's the, that's the age Jesus was when he died, right? Um, and I think that's kind of funny, but uh, I'd, I'd rather get like a 21-year-old body, not 33. Uh, but there you have it. Uh, I think I, I think I, th- I think the point is that that Christians will uh, will endure all kinds of things, um, not because they believe the body's meaningless, but because they believe that it is meaningful. Um, and that that really is the key to understanding the Christian approach to suffering. Uh, it, it is 
And, and I think that's needed today when people are saying, well, what's the point of Joe suffering so badly from XYZ? Parkinson's, cancer, uh, whatever it may be. Um, wouldn't it be better to just relieve the suffering? Well, I think the Christian answer is, Joe's not a dog, okay? Joe's a human being. Um, and, and his dignity is founded upon, uh, upon the image that is in him. Um, so anyway, that's, that's all for today. We'll, we'll pick up... Actually, so here's what's going to happen. Next week during this time, uh, Jerry Kramer's going to speak. Uh, he's a missionary to the Islamic world. Um, and chances are, if you, if you watch the news on a regular basis, you're seeing what's happening in his backyard. Okay, I'll just put it that way. Um, and um, in addition to that, so we will have that Sunday, the 18th, He'll be here to speak during this hour. The following Sunday, of course, is Christmas Day, so we'll just meet at 10.30 on that day and not have catechesis. The following Sunday is, uh, is New Year's Day, so we will not meet that day for catechesis either. We'll just have the Sunday service at 10.30. And then the following Sunday, uh, which will be the 7th, um, or, or is it the 8th? It'll be the 8th. Uh, catechesis will resume, okay? And we'll start with... Um, with the second part of the catechism, which is the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to be talking about prayer straight up till Lent. So it's very timely, um, and, uh, and it should be a, a good study. So uh, that's when we start back up, is, is January 8th. All right. Thank you, everyone.